And uh, so for this week, we're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to that. Um, it's in the back half of the New Testament, so you're going to head all the way to the far right of your book, and a little book called 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 16. It's the very, very end uh, part here that Paul has to write to the Thessalonians. Well, what is the will of God? There's only a few passages in the Bible that specifically state the phrase, this is the will of God for you. So, living this way that God has for us and where he speaks this in the Bible is us living out God's will. Now, the context of today's verse is that this will that God has for us is to be done always, to be done continually, and to be done in all circumstances. So, if we're going to do something always, continually, and in all circumstances, this will need to be something we do as a lifestyle. It will need to be, it will need to direct who we are and how we live. So, the good news for today is that you and I, according to the Bible, can live in the will of God. And God wants us then to be people who, and let's go ahead and look at the passage here. It's very short. It says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, for some context, this verse, the Apostle Paul is writing to these people in uh, the Greco-Roman world called the Thessalonians. They lived in a city called Thessalonica. And it was written to a church that was not living in prosperity, They were not living with notoriety, fame, or comfort. It was written to a church who was enduring persecution and they were enduring trials. Early in Acts, Paul, his uh, partner Silas, and their disciple Timothy first visited Thessalonica and they encountered threats and a mob who tried to kill them because they were accused of of defying Caesar by proclaiming Jesus as the one true king. Now, after leaving the city, this little church pops up, and Paul becomes very concerned for the Thessalonian church. And so, he, and there, he's concerned that they may fall due to their persecution that they were facing. And so, he sends Timothy, his disciple, to go visit and to encourage them. This letter we read here is Paul's encouragement back to the church after hearing the good report from Timothy that the Thessalonians were holding true and they were standing firm in the gospel. The central focus of this book is about the eager expectation for churches everywhere for the return of the Lord and how they are to live as the church as they wait for God's return. So, here's the question for this morning. How do we do this? How do we live like people who are joyful, prayerful, and thankful? Now, This part right here of the sermon, bear with me, is going to be the bad news part of the sermon, okay? So just bear with me as we walk through this. I want you to think about this. Here's a question for you to think about on your own. Are you a person who is looked at or would be described as joyful, humble, and thankful? Is that how your spouse would describe you if asked? Describe your husband or describe your wife to me. How about your kids? Or your grandkids? How would your neighbor describe you? Or how about your coworkers? 
Because here's the truth. I don't think if asked about me in my life, if that's the first three words people would uh, say forth to describe me. If you ask my wife or my kids, describe Jared, I'm not sure joyful, prayerful, or humble, and thankful would be the first three words out of their mouth. And why is that? And why would I, a follower of Christ, and for goodness sake, a pastor, how could I struggle and to be described by these characteristics? Well, the answer is pretty simple. You and I, we live in a very anxious society. And that means that you and I are going to battle in being anxious people. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Jared, I'm not anxious. I don't struggle with anxiety. I know other people do, but not me. I've never been diagnosed with this. Well, I want to ask you some further questions then to diagnose what's going on inside of us. How do you respond to the news cycle personally? When it comes across on your Facebook feed, when you turn on the news, when you listen to the radio, how do you feel? Are you irritated? Does it cause you to feel anger? What about, what are the slogans, what do these make you feel? Make America great again. Or build back better. Do those conjure up any feelings inside of you or make you feel something? How about when someone from the opposite political or social viewpoints throws their ideas in your face? Do you feel defensive? Do you feel the need to defend truth? How about, have you ever made the following statements in your life? Uh, can you believe it? How could they? How about back in my day? How could anyone be so stupid? What are they thinking? Let's turn it another direction. Do you ever feel tired and just angry at life in general? Because our lives consist of running from activity to activity. We struggle with feeling the need to meet everyone's expectations. Everyone from our boss to our coworkers, to our customers, our friends, the, our, the expectations of our neighbors, and then even the expectations of our spouse or our children or grandchildren. We work hard every day at our jobs with people that frustrate us. We feel the need to keep up on a news cycle that's constantly angering us. We witness and engage in angry social media conversations around politics and culture, and we find ourselves even outraged by the back and forth of the rich and the famous on Twitter and decide who do we align with and who are we against. So after all that, that anxious, angry life that we live, here's the question we're left with, and it's the title of the sermon today. So what now? I want to read, from you, or read for you a little excerpt from a book by a Catholic priest. His name is Henry Nouwen. Um, he's since passed away, and from this book, it's called The Way of the Heart. Henry Nouwen is writing specifically to pastors here concerning what happens when their identity is in the things apart from God. But there's something in here for all of us, so listen as I read this. Henry says, The two main enemies of the spiritual life, anger, and greed. They are the inner side of a secular life, the sour fruits of our worldly dependencies. What else is anger than the impulsive response 
to the experience of being deprived. When my sense of self depends on what others say about me, anger is a quite natural reaction to a critical world. And when my sense of self depends on what I can acquire, greed flares up when my desires are frustrated. Thus, greed and anger are brother and sister of a false self, which is fabricated by the social compulsions of this unredeemed world. Anger, in particular, seems, seems close to a professional vice in the contemporary ministry. Pastors are angry at their leaders for not leading and angry at their followers for not following. They're angry at those who cannot come to church or are not coming and angry at those of whom do come without com- w- w- coming without enthusiasm. They're angry at their families who make them feel guilty and even angry at themselves for not being who they want to be. This is not an open, blatant, roaring anger, but an anger hidden behind a smooth word, a smiling face, and a polite handshake. It's a frozen anger, an anger which settles into a biting resentment and slowly paralyzes a generous heart. If there is anything that makes the ministry look grim and dull, it is this dark, insidious anger in the servants of Christ. Have you ever felt frustrated with your church or frustrated or disagreed with a pastor or an elder or a leader? Everybody's felt that towards their church? Can, can I tell you a little, little secret? Pastors have felt the same thing against you. Because <laughs> we're people. We get frustrated with each other. We don't meet expectations. We're frustrated with what you're not doing for me and I'm not doing for you. And I think it's so amazing here. It's almost like with this anger being below the surface, it's almost like Henry's talking about Minnesotans who are really good at feeling things and really good at not expressing them, at holding stuff under the surface and boiling and boiling and boiling, and yet we mask it with, hello, how are you doing? A nice smile, a change of tone when the phone call comes through. We're really good at holding it down and hiding it. And I want to just tell you, I'm not here to preach to you, friends. I'm here to to learn along with you. And uh, to start with that, I want to share with you a personal story from myself on how I've failed in this. Last summer, I took a four-month sabbatical from my previous church. And I, to be honest, I crashed into that sabbatical personally. I was tired. I was hurt. I was frustrated. I was disappointed. I was burned out. And a month into my sabbatical, so partway through June, I came to the realization that I was actually very, very, very angry. Now, it all started, we had come back from a family vacation in the early parts of June, and I was mowing our lawn, and nothing was going well that day. We had multiple quality lawnmowers that just weren't running that day. And so on this hot, sticky, gross summer day, I was resolved to pushing around a junky, tiny little push mower that doesn't work very well, round and around my yard, in the hot. For whatever reason, that day I didn't put anything in my ears, music or a podcast or anything to distract me. And so... As you're left with your thoughts and you're left with those stupid lawnmowers and whatever those are, then all the other thoughts start to come in an hour into this. And every time I went around the house, just more frustration, more anger, more self-loathing. 
As soon as the, the yard was finally done, I was at my end. I sat on a bench in our yard and I sobbed. I had hit my edge. I had nothing left to give. I had no more energy or passion to give the Lord. I was clean out of answers for him. So my wife came out and was talking to me that afternoon and she encouraged me to take a personal retreat for a few days and clear my head. So I took four days and I took a camping trip on my own out to Itasca State Park. I'd gone out for the first day and didn't do a very good job of connecting with God. It's pretty easy to stay busy and to keep yourself going. And the Lord wasn't going to stop with that. He had something to show me. So on my first night, I had come back to my campsite late at night, drive up to, to where our, my circle was, where my campsite was, and there was orange cones blocking off the road. So I moved the cone, drove through, came into my camp circle, and every single campsite had been vacated. It's kind of freaky at 11.30 midnight at night, you know. Drive up to my campsite, go to my uh, table that's in there, and there was a little note on there from the park service. Can you please call the park service? Oh, man. So, grabbed my stuff, jumped in my vehicle, drove my car up. I tried calling. No one answered. It's late at night. They're closed. I slept in my vehicle that night at the parking lot at the front of the camp. Of course, didn't sleep very well and woke up at 4.30 in the morning, wide awake, ready to take on the day, get answers, but wouldn't you know, the park service doesn't open until 9. So I'm left here with no answers. I assumed it was something to do with bears, and it was proven true. Bears were in that area eating stuff and causing trouble. So I had time to blow, and I was sitting in my car stewing and frustrated, and I had remembered a text from a friend of mine who had shared a little excerpt from a book, and it was this one that I had just read to you. And as I put it into my car and was listening to the audio book, the part about the boiling anger that lurks in a pasture underneath the surface, it broke me. I was sick of people. I was angry with government and those in corporate power following the events of the pandemic. I was angry at the media with what I saw as agendas and dishonesty. I was angry at those that didn't see things my way. I was angry at those I worked with on staff. I was angry at my congregation, those who attacked my leadership decisions over the past few years. I was angry at those who had left our church and those who voiced their opinions and did nothing to help us. I was angry. In bringing me to that point, the Lord left me, though, with this question. So what now? Have you ever felt like this before? I would guess that we've all felt this at some point towards someone or something. You see, my identity had been boiled down to what I could do for God and what I could produce for him, the problems I could solve, the people I could impress, and the ministries that I could build. My identity was found in being right, in having the answer, in being impressive and respected. And what it left me with was anger. So what speaks into your identity this morning apart from Christ? Is it your professional success or your earnings? Is it your accomplishments and the notoriety that it brings? Or how about how well your children behave or how well they exceed in athletics or academics? Is it found in the approval of your friends, the approval of your boss or your coworkers? Or maybe your identity is found in being right 
winning the argument or proving others to be wrong. Well, I'm sorry to say that it doesn't stop here. The problem doesn't. It gets actually even worse. (laughs) Because naturally, our response to this state of our anger is pride over our anger. You see, we tend to feel proud that we see the truth, that we can see what is wrong, and that we're justified to be angry over the evil, over the bad people, the bad ideas, the bad culture. Our anger feels justified because we usually think to ourselves, these people have unrealistic expectations of me that I can't meet. Those people are bad. Those people are evil. And then we go on and think to ourselves, good for us that we see it the way it really is. And then we also go off and we look for other people who see it the same way that we do. You see, that's how I felt. I found comfort in finding others that shared my anger and outrage. And we could be really proud of ourselves. And we could be self-righteous because the fact is, we were angry on behalf of God. We believe God needed defending. I think we all feel like God might need some defending. And is that what God actually has for us as the church? Is the church here for us to be a group of people that are angry at a sinful world? Is the church here to tell the world just how messed up it really is? Well, the truth of the matter is God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our anger. He doesn't need our outrage. He doesn't need our work harder, our try harder, and our do more. He doesn't need our anxiety, which is masked by what we would call zeal and commitment to the cause. We can try to rationalize and justify it. Because here's the reality. None of this is good for our soul. Anger like this only infects our soul from the inside out and then as it's eroding us, it puts up walls between us and the rest of our broken world. And that's why the title of today's sermon is So What Now? This is what the Lord convicted me of that day. Jared, you're angry. You can see the broken things in the world. You can see the broken things in other people and you know what? You can even see the broken things in yourself. But he left me with this question, so what now? I've heard it said that self-awareness is highly overrated. You can be self-aware and do nothing about it. Friends, God has something for us to do today. And the Apostle Paul, he answers this question with these three verses. Church, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, the Wall Street Journal did a study a while back, and the title of the findings was, Giving Thanks is Good for Your Health. It turns out that giving thanks is actually good for your health, the the article said. A growing body of research suggests that maintaining an attitude of gratitude can improve psychological, emotional, and physical well-being. Adults who frequently feel grateful have more energy, more optimism, more social connections, and more happiness than those who do not, according to the study which was conducted over the past decade. They're also less likely to be depressed, envious, greedy, or alcoholics. 
They earn more money, sleep more soundly, exercise more regularly, and have greater resistance to viral infection simply by having a good attitude. Any kids in the room? Research also finds that it brings similar benefits to you as kids and adolescents. Kids who feel and act grateful tend to be less materialistic, they get better grades, they set higher goals, they complain of fewer headaches and stomach aches, and feel more satisfied with their friends, family, and school than those who don't, the studies show. Now, the researchers randomly divided more than 100 undergraduates into three groups. The first group was to list five things they were grateful for during the past 10 consecutive weeks. Each week, list five things you're grateful for for 10 weeks in a row. The second group would do the same, but they would write down five things they were frustrated about or angry about. The third group was simply to list five events that happened that week. They also completed detailed questionnaires about their physical and mental health before, during, and after. Now, those who listed blessings each week had fewer health complaints, exercised more regularly, and felt better about their lives in general than the other two groups. If you're to look at survival books or go into the military, one of the most important pieces, the most important piece to survival is a positive attitude. Dwight D. Eisenhower once said, morale is the greatest single factor in successful wars. The U.S. Air Force has a grueling survival school, 17 weeks. They want their soldiers to remember two numbers. The first one, 98.6 because your body temp, you got to regulate your body temp well. The second number is the number three. And their saying goes, you cannot go three minutes without air, three hours without shelter, three days without water, three weeks without food, three months without companionship and love. Now the one I left out, you cannot go three seconds without a positive attitude and hope. And this is coming from the U.S. Air Force Grueling Survival School. In, the, in sports, we talk about this as momentum. Momentum is the positive outlook of feeling victory and it transfers from one team to the next. The team that wins is the team that holds on to momentum or the team that is behind and grabs a hold of momentum and doesn't give it back and rides it to the finish line. So Paul writes that we are to be people marked by joy, by prayer, and by thanksgiving. And even, friends, in the general world, the secular world, look at how God has made it all. Even there it proves that we need this, that God has built us not to be angry, but to be something else. So I want to take a moment and I want to break these three pieces down. Because we can say, be joyful, pray, give thanks, Jared, how do I do it and how do I give it away? Let's tackle that here this morning. So the first one is that we are to be people who rejoice always. Now, the Greek word for always is pantote. Now, this word has two connecting words to make one. It's an every connected to a when. So the idea is when something happens, do what it was describing. So in this case, Rejoice always. Paul is saying, when something happens, rejoice. And you can fill in the when with literally everything in life. When you're tired, rejoice. When you're at school, rejoice. 
When you're at work, rejoice. When you're at home, rejoice. When you're at the grocery store, rejoice. The Bible even says, when you are persecuted, rejoice. Jesus says that. How in the world are we supposed to rejoice always? Now, we've tried to explain this and make sense of it, and you've maybe heard the phrase, don't worry, be happy. It's a song, right? Or maybe you've heard the Sunday school song, rejoice in the Lord always. Amen. We sing it, we've tried to remind ourselves of it. Now, it feels impossible. And so people have tried to make sense. Try to, try, to, try to lower the bar. How are we going to do this? Well, they'll say something like, you know, this joy is something that we have to do. It's not connected to an emotion. Now, I want to challenge this by saying, Jesus once said in the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verse 8, he says, these people, speaking of the religious leaders, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is, this is not, friends, just an external. This is not a work harder, do better, put on a good face and get after the day with my joy. That's not what this is about. Well, so I'm leaving us with a conundrum, right? Jared, how in the world are we supposed to do this then? How do we rejoice always? There's two truths I want to share with us this morning. The first is this. Joy is simply a gift from the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in the early, in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he says to the believers, You have become imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. And here's the kicker with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. There's no rhyme or reason on how this message could have fallen on suffering, uh, downtrodden believers. But the message came to broken people who were suffering and they received it with joy. And it wasn't a joy that they conjured up. It was a joy given by the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 is the well-known chapter talking about the gifts or the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul writes that the gifts of the Spirit include love, peace, and joy. Joy in all circumstances, friends, is literally a miracle and a gift from God. So the question this morning is, have you ever asked for it? Have you ever prayed that you would receive this supernatural joy that comes from finding your identity and being a child of God, the perfect king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords? Friends, in our humanness, as we struggle to do the best we can and yet fall short, as we're reminded from the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who see their dependency on God, have you come to him and have you asked him for a joy that only comes from him, that supersedes circumstances and situations and supersedes everything in this, in this world we find ourselves in? Would you ask for that supernatural joy? So first, ask for the joy. But second, you need a, you need a fuel for this joy to run on. It's not going to be a fuel that's fueled by your situations. You see, they asked a prisoner of war survivor one time, who died first in their captivity? And he quickly responded with the optimist. Optimist was the first to go. Because the optimist would say things like, oh, it's, it's the first part of the year. Surely by summer they will come and they'll save us. The Americans will come. 
Then summer would come and nobody was there to save them. And then they would say, oh, surely by Thanksgiving the Americans will come and save us. But then months would go by and Thanksgiving would pass by and no one was there to save them. Then they would say, well, surely by the new year they'll come and save us. And the new year would come and no one was there to save them. You see, the optimist had no fuel to run on. There was nothing to fuel his optimism. Optimism alone will not let you succeed. You've heard this song. The sun will come up tomorrow. But what if tomorrow is actually worse than today? So I say, that's great, Annie, but I would not bet your bottom dollar on it. There is no guarantee that tomorrow will be better. Quite frankly, it might be way worse. What's fueling our joy, friends? The message of Jesus is the reason why we have joy. Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection, which defeated death once and for all, that's our fuel. A relationship with this Lord. In our lives now, and as Paul was encouraging the Thessalonians, in an eternal life to come, that is what fuels this supernatural joy given by the Holy Spirit. God did not leave us for hell, friends. Those of us who are in Christ, we are saved and we serve a king who has already won. And in the end, the Bible tells us every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that this Jesus Christ, that he is Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe, friends, that the evil you see in this world, that the people who anger you and frustrate you, the people in power that keep you up at night, do you truly believe that Christ will actually return and that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, that, ju that justice will be served on this planet? Why are we angry? When our God has already won and he tells us that he will win in the end. Because Paul writes to the Philippians, and I'm going to paraphrase chapters 3 and 4, he says to them, I am like a sacrifice right now. I feel like a guy being put on the altar for sacrifice. Paul's in prison writing this letter to them. And here's what he says in response to that. In all of this, I rejoice. How could Paul rejoice in prison? How could he rejoice in pain and how could he rejoice in suffering? Because Paul believed in a Jesus, the shining light of the world, who had already defeated all of his enemies and all death. And Paul saw the kingdom of God moving and he saw the kingdom of God coming and it fueled his joy. At the end of Paul's life, he writes in the book of Second Timothy, he writes to Timothy and says, this is before he's about to be killed, for I am, a, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. You see, Paul could rejoice always because it was a gift from the Holy Spirit that he asked for and he received and it was a fuel that ran off the gospel and the coming of Jesus Christ. Paul could rejoice always. Now, our second one is that we are to be people who pray continually or pray without ceasing. Now, people who pray are aware of two very important truths. They're aware of their dependency on God 
I am dependent on God, which is why I'm coming to him with requests. And the second part is that God is present, that he's here, that he's engaged. So how do we pray continually? Well, Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18. He says, one day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But here's the, here's the kicker at the end. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Jesus is saying, ask. Come with your requests. Come with your needs. Your loving Heavenly Father wants to give you what you need. But then he has a concern. When I come back from my church, how many will I find angry and anxious and mad at the world? Or how many will I find who have the faith to come dependent on me? And believe, have faith that I am big enough to do something about their lives. Because our core problem here is that we struggle to depend on God and we struggle to believe God is present and we struggle to believe that God is actually working in our midst. All the things that make us angry and anxious from politics to society issues, do you believe that God is in control and that he can actually handle all this stuff? Or have we somehow convinced ourselves that God actually needs us? That he needs my anger and he needs my outrage? That he needs my reactivity to the world around me? That he needs my effort and he needs my hard work? That he needs me to be good enough and he needs me to measure up? Or are we going to be people who believe, I come dependent, Lord, you are present and you are in control? This is why we pray all the time and we pray with dependence. God wants to do something about your and my situations. So church, let's pray like God exists. Let's pray like God is working. Let's pray like God actually cares about what's going on in our lives and the lives around us. Do we believe this? That God exists and he will give you what you need, not what you want, that he will give you what you need when you ask him. Because if you believe that, you will pray more and you will pray often and you will pray in all situations and circumstances. Hebrews 11, the writer says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That is what faith is. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, Without this faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him 
must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek after him. You see, the problem is faith in something I should be, this faith is something I should be using all the time. For the Christian, it should be very strange if we are not trusting God with all the parts of our lives. Lastly, we are to be people who give thanks in all circumstances. The wording's important here. Paul does not say, be thankful for all circumstances. He says, be thankful in all circumstances. So, if you believe that God rules, that God's in charge, and if you believe, then you can believe that even pain, even difficult times, he's saying be thankful in all circumstances. How can we be thankful in all circumstances? If we believe God's in control, we believe even pain can work for our good. Romans 8.28, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And then, what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Nothing is bigger than Jesus. Nothing is more powerful. No one's in more control. And God is for you. And he is holding all things together. Do we believe that this morning, church? I think down our core, most of us do. But I want to bring us to an illustration here from the, the, book, of, uh, the book series, The Chronicles of Narnia. It's from the book, The Silver Chair. It's one of the saddest books in the series. The children meet with Aslan, the lion, up, in, up on a mountaintop. Where the sky is open, the air is fresh, they can see for miles, so much clarity. And he tells the children, I'm sending you on a mission. You will go down into the valley where there will be fog and the air is thick. And it will be so easy for you to forget all the things that I have told you. You see, the children would have, would have to fight to keep their minds right. We need to fight to remind ourselves of who God is, of his character, his promises, his presence, which is always with us. This is not easy. It takes a lot of work to be thankful. It's actually almost madness that we, should, that we would be thankful when we see the brokenness and evil that we find in our world. When you and I are attacked for our faith, when family members pull away from us. And yet in the midst of all that, we can give thanks in all circumstances because no matter what, God is always good. God is always in control. He is always working all things for good. And his love for us will never fail. You see, for me, last summer, I learned that God didn't need my anger he didn't need my defensiveness, my try harder, my do more. What he needed was for me to find my identity, to find my hope, and find my joy in him and in him alone. It was never to be found in anything or anyone else. Not in my country, 
Not in my freedom, not in my bank account, not my success, not my notoriety, not my approval from others. Because focusing on all these other things, if that was the end goal, all it left me with was anxiousness and anger. The question, so what now, it leads us to moving beyond our anger. It leads us to moving beyond our fear. It leads us to finding joy and rest in Christ and in Christ alone. Friends, the world doesn't need another anxious Christian. And the world doesn't need another outraged evangelical. It just doesn't. There's enough of that kind of stuff in the world already. It's chocked full of angry, anxious, outraged people. It doesn't need another charged social media post or comment. And I just want to say this. It's hard living out there. It's not easy. We have a lot of reasons to be frustrated and mad and hurt and overwhelmed. We have a lot of reasons to be the way that we are humanly. But to butt up against that, we're faced with this challenge. What the world needs in the midst of all of its mess, and we're a part of it, what it needs is faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And that these faithful followers would be marked by joy, by prayer, and by thankfulness. There's a group of men who are going through a a book series uh, here at Lakewood. And it's about being an unoffendable Christian. And I heard recently, just this past week, heard a podcast interview with the author. And it was extremely challenging about how to be people who don't look around the world and respond with, I can't believe And respond with God's in control and I'm going to live this life well. Because here's the deal. It would be like as Minnesotans if we went outside in January and shook our fist at the sky. I can't believe it's still snowing and it's cold out right now. (laughs) It'd be insane, right, for us to do that? Friends, have you read Genesis chapter 3? It's when the whole world fell apart. And then the entire book is a book about messed up people who rebel against God and hurt one another. Church, this is the way the world is. It's not any worse, it's not any better, it's just what it is. It's the way it's always been. And then somehow God is calling individuals out of the mess, into relationship with him, not to look back at the world and be mad and overwhelmed and frustrated by it, but to be transformed and to be changed into people who are joyful, who are prayerful, and who are thankful. And here's where it doesn't end. It doesn't end with you and me. I'm not preaching this sermon to make you a joyful, happy, thankful person. That's the first step. Turn away, turn to God, move into these things. But God hasn't called us to just be good people. To be a disciple maker and to be a follower of Christ is to be people who make disciples, who make followers of Christ. So as a faithful follower, we're called beyond just holding on to this good news for ourselves. The response this morning is who will get to experience our joy this week? Who will be blessed by your continual prayer? Who will be blessed and encouraged by your heart of gratitude and thanksgiving?
Church, we're called to live a life here on earth as faithful followers of Christ who reproduce faithful followers of Christ. So, this morning, receive the gift of joy from the Holy Spirit. Let it be fueled by the gospel and then go and bless others with your joy. Pray out of your dependence on Christ and your belief that God is in control and God cares about your situations and then go and bless others with prayer. Live a life of thanksgiving in all circumstances and you do so because you are loved by God. You have been adopted by him, by a perfect, all-powerful God who calls you then to bless others with your attitude of thanksgiving. So how do we answer this question this morning? So what now? Church, let us rejoice always. Let us pray continually. And would we give thanks in all circumstances? Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I humbly come before you this morning. We humbly come before you this morning. Because in and of ourselves, Lord, we do not measure up. And I'm reminded this morning, Father, of the standard you set when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as I am perfect. Father, we can't do that. You knew we couldn't do that. And what is our response to these things? Jesus begins that sermon with blessed are the poor in spirit that we would recognize who we are, our brokenness, our need, our inability, our sin, and we would recognize our need for you. Lord, let us not be overcome by our circumstances, by our, the politics, by the social uh, situation we find ourselves in, the culture. Father, would it move us to still be people who are joyful, prayerful, and thankful because of who you are and who you've called us to be. Let us see, Lord, that this world is actually a war of principalities and spirits, not a war of flesh and blood. That you would turn our eyes and our hearts, Lord, to see the world around us in its brokenness, in its depravity, that it's a world in need of you and what it needs is joyful, prayerful, thankful believers who will engage it with patience and love. Father, as we fail, would your spirit empower us? Lord, each day would we pray for the joy that comes from the spirit? Lord, would we pray out of our dependency? And Father, would we see gratitude around our lives for everything you are holding together and all gifts coming from you? Lord, as we respond in this song here now, singing out the gospel, would it fill us? Lord, would your spirit not withhold his conviction? But Lord, as we're convicted, would your spirit empower us to be sent out, to be changed people who are joyful, humble, and thankful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you please stand as we close this morning?